Section 19 of The Bachelor's Club by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12 A Bolt from the Blue. Part 1. It was a miserable evening about the middle of November. All day the sun had been shining brightly and had been doing so since the beginning of the month. This wretched perversity in the weather had unsettled everybody. People were afraid to go out at night for fear of losing their way in the coming fog. But the sky remained beautifully blue and starry. Since the unreasonable behavior of Mandeville Brown, McGillicuddy and myself had been constant in our attendance at the Bachelor's Club. There was a considerable sum of money in the exchequer, owing to the working of the new insurance system, and it had been swollen recently by one or two anonymous subscriptions from married ladies who lamented that their husbands had not had the benefit of a similar institution while they were yet celibates. If only the idea that we were a charitable organization should spread abroad among the uninquiring, the reversion of the treasury ship would be worth having. Mandeville Brown had uncomplainingly added the post to his secretariat when Moses Fitzwilliams departed this life of ours, but now that Brown, too, had gone over to the majority, it became a serious question which of the remaining members should assume the weighty responsibility. It spoke well for the tenacity of purpose still inherent in the Bachelors' Club that each and all of the members were anxious for the burden. We were ranged in two parties, one in favor of the candidature of the President, the other of mine. There seemed no chance of settling the thing, for each side was unwavering in its unity. That was why, in spite of the attractions of the House of the Graces, to which I was frequently invited, I went to the club regularly, for fear McGillicuddy should pass illegal measures in my absence. McGillicuddy almost lived at the club for a similar reason. The nuisance was that, though we were always together, we could get no forwarder, for not only were both parties evenly balanced, and so perfectly general that they moved as one man, but it was impossible for us to muster sufficient members to form a quorum. We compromised it at last by agreeing to divide the duties and other things, and to check each other's accounts and expenditure. Then the white wings of peace hovered once more over the bachelor's club, and all was bliss and brotherhood. It was while doing our best to supply nature's deficiencies in the way of November fog, by creating one in the inner sanctum of the bachelor's club, that the president and I heard a strange feminine voice in the smoking-room. McGillicuddy's glass fell like a barometer before a storm. I, too, was agitated by the novelty of a visitor. "'You must go out again,' we heard the faithful Willoughby remark. "'We'll see about that,' came the reply in slow, acidulated drops of sound. "'Stand aside, or I'll send for a policeman.' At the mention of a policeman, McGillicuddy started to his feet as if shot up by a spring. A policeman in the bachelor's club? The indignity was beyond forbearance. "'Only married ladies are admitted,' said Willoughby in deprecatory tones. "'Aha!' hissed the lady. "'Then look at my marriage certificate.' From this open sesame there was no appeal. "'Very well, Mrs. O'Flanagan,' Willoughby was heard to say respectfully. "'Who is it you wish to see?' "'Mr. Andrew McGillicuddy,' came the answer in clear, vibrant accents. "'No, no!' gasped the President. He rushed to the door of communication and barricaded it with his back. I looked at my co-secretary in surprise. His face was ashen as his cigar-tip. 
Willoughby Jones rattled the door, surprised at its unwanted refusal to comply with his wishes. "'Mr. McGillicuddy,' he called out, "'here's a lady to see you, married, Mrs. Patrick O'Flanagan.' "'Say I'm not here,' the President whispered to me. "'Really, the calm way in which people ask you to imperil your immortal soul by telling lies for them is quite wonderful.' Besides, I did not wish my friend to be found out by this woman, whoever she was, so I whispered to him that it was useless, for Willoughby had admitted that he was in by admitting the visitor. "'Say I'm not in!' chestered the president to the dusky steward. He was evidently bent on self-denial, but I do not believe in any form of that virtue. "'McGillicuddy,' I said, "'can you show any cause of just impediment to this lady's entry by by-law?' "'She is not married,' McGillicuddy whispered hoarsely. "'How do you know?' McGillicuddy was silent. "'Canna you believe me, man?' he said. "'I can her history.' I could see how excited he was by his dropping into his native Scottish. I sympathized with him deeply. "'Paul,' he went on, "'you are a brawl good fellow. Take the lass away.' The shaking of the door continued. "'Open the door, McGillicuddy.' said the lady in withering tones. "'You won't slip through my fingers any more, I warrant.' At the word warrant, the president trembled like a pet spaniel. Obeying an agonized sign from him, I placed my back against the door. McGillicuddy then ran to the window, lifted the sash, and threw his left leg over the sill. I feared he meant suicide. The thought of the nocturnal fall of the president of the bachelor's club upon the pavement of Leicester Square filled me with horror.' I rushed forward and caught him by the remaining leg before I remembered the few inches of balcony on which he had meditated taking refuge. The door flew open behind me. The lady rushed in. I let go of the president's writhing limb, which hastened out upon the ledge. Then I slammed the window down violently and turned round. Mrs. Patrick O'Flanagan and I were face to face. "'Stand aside, sir,' said the tall, plump lady, waving her marriage certificate. I saw the calf. I recognized it. I would know it among a herd of calves. What calf? I said ingeniously. Oh, you are all leagued together, she cried. Stand aside, sir. I saw the leg. What leg? I repeated. My leg, she answered. Mine, if there is law in England. Excuse me, madam, said I, suspecting I had to do with a madwoman. "'So far as I can see, you appear to me to have the usual quantity already.' "'How dare you insult me, sir?' said the lady, flashing a small lightning-storm from her eyes and drawing her skirts closer around her. "'How dare you stand between husband and wife?' "'Husband and wife?' I said. "'My dear lady, you have come to the wrong shop. This is a bachelor's club. We keep no husbands on these premises.' "'No, indeed,' she said. "'They are off. Look there.' I turned in the direction of her finger. The president's white face was pressed in agony against the glass. His head was hoary with snow, which had suddenly commenced to fall. I remembered that the ledge was short and narrow, and that it was dangerous to move hand or foot out there. Without assistance, the president could not even get in again. That, I said, is Mr. Andrew McGillicuddy. That, said she, is Mr. Patrick O'Flanagan, my husband. It's a donly shrieked the president, his voice coming dim and faint through the panes. "'As I hope for salvation, I am not this woman's husband!' "'You wretch!' shrieked the lady. "'Who 
Whose portrait is this, then? I turned to look at the photo, and banged my head against several other heads. They were the waiters and the stewards, all bending down eagerly at the same instant. All the relics of the bachelor's club were gathered to watch this fateful scene. Things had indeed come to a pretty pass when the waiters were all awake together. I felt quite sore over it, and, with as much dignity as I could command, ordered them to withdraw. I was left in a room with the alleged wife of the president. I was determined that our underlings should not witness this crowning humiliation except through the keyhole. The photo was not a bit like McGillicuddy, and underneath were the words, Ever thine, Patrick O'Flanagan. This was enough. The photo was evidently the work of an artistic photographer, and the handwriting was plainly McGillicuddy sloped to the left. Some men have such poverty of resources. I opened the window indignantly and assisted his wife in hauling him into the room. "'Paul, I'm innocent!' shrieked McGillicuddy in his broadest scotch as we deposited him on the writing-table where the blotting-paper thirstily drank up his coat of snow. "'Ah, you are a gentleman,' Mrs. O'Flanagan said to me with fine discernment. "'You, sir, shall judge between us. About eighteen months ago this man came down to Long Stanton in Cambridgeshire, where I dwelt in my youth and innocence, and wooed and won my trusting heart.' She wiped away a tear with the marriage certificate which she still held in her hand. There was something confiding and candid about the very name of the place which added to the heinousness of McGillicuddy's offence. Long Stanton in Cambridgeshire? "'It's Don't Lee,' repeated the ungentlemanly person on the dripping writing-table. "'It's the gospel truth,' said Mrs. O'Flanagan. "'My heart went out to the breezy Irishman with his bright spirits and his lovable brogue. Up to that date, sir, I had been confirmed opponent of marriage.' I had a younger sister who married three times within four years, her husbands all dying within a year of marriage. I was afraid it might run in the family, so I scrupulously refrained from being asked in marriage for the sake of my husbands. But when Patrick O'Flanagan came through the door, my scruples flew out the window. On a fair summer morning, no brighter than my heart, I placed my hand within his, and we were wed before the registrar, for he would not go to church. "'It's a dumb Lee,' said the President. "'Sit down,' I said to the poor victim as I wheeled her an armchair. "'Go on.' On leaving the registrar's office, we took the train to Harwich and wrote for Holland, where we had located our honeymoon. On the way we chatted freely, for the train was crowded. All at once, as I was talking, Patrick turned pale. I asked him what was the matter. He said he felt a little sick and the carriage was so stuffy— Shortly afterwards we arrived at a junction. The train stopped for five minutes for refreshment. Patrick got out to get a drop of brandy to put him right. The five minutes passed, the bell rang. I rushed to the window in case my husband had forgotten the carriage. I looked wildly up and down. Men were jumping in all along the station. "'Stand away there!' shouted the guard. He waved his flag. The station slid backwards. And we were off. Anxiety gnawing at my bosom, I comforted myself with the thought that he had just had time to pop into another carriage. But soon I learned a bitter truth. That junction was a parting of our lives. Like a true Irishman, my husband preferred to spend his honeymoon alone. I never set eyes on him from that day to this. But my search has been successful at last, thanks to my having means and spending them freely in the search. 
by the aid of a private detective agency i learned that my husband passed under the name of mcgillicuddy and that this club was his favourite resort she turned to the president who still lay huddled together on the writing-table his face was white as the driven snow outside now patrick she said will you come away quietly with me to holland for a honeymoon the question made him sit up but he did nothing but stare at her come patrick she said come away and all shall be forgotten and forgiven drink that glass of brandy and rejoin me in the train she drew a gold watch from her bodice it leaves liverpool street station for harwich in eighty-five minutes at nine a m to-morrow we shall be in rotterdam how do you know gasped mcgillicuddy how do i know said mrs o'flanagan her voice breaking with infinite pathos and tenderness have i not waited weary months for this hour have i not had ample leisure to study my bradshaw it has been the one relaxation in my misery what has buoyed me up and kept me well and strong only the thought that some day somewhere you and i would meet again patrick that some day somewhere again you would place your hand in mine love that some day somewhere you and i would walk to the booking office together and again i would take the tickets for holland that some day dear whether it be a duncaster or rugby via bradford or glasgow we should arrive at parkston quay together and together board the nine fifty dutch boat as if our honeymoon had never been interrupted and the interim were an evil dream when my search was weariest and my courage lowest and the horizon darkest i turned to my bradshaw and read for the thousandth time the message of hope and peace and found therein comfort and courage the pages are bedewed with my tears but they are the tears of hope not of despair my own eyes were wet as i listened oh the sublime patience and fortitude of woman come darling said mrs o'flanagan the harwich express starts in one hour twenty-one minutes it's a dumb lee said mcgillicuddy automatically come darling repeated the poor wronged lady and every syllable was a caress and a pardon go away shouted mcgillicuddy yes that's just what i mean go away she said by the eight p m mcgillicuddy got off the table and stood facing us paul he said pleadingly take the creature away see her to the a p m express my dear fellow i said that is expressly your duty what he cried in anguish surely you don't believe i am this woman's husband i do but paul my dear old friend on my word of honour as president of the bachelors club she is no wife of mine don't you believe me yes surely you believe me paul i was silent i remembered his vanishing leg i remembered the photo decidedly appearances were against him i cannot believe you i said groaning mcgillicuddy echoed the groan and covered his spectacles with his hands mrs o'flanagan laid her hand tenderly on his head he shook it off the hand and faced us again the light as of truth gleamed from his eyes some day paul he said you will recognize the injustice you are doing me i am not this woman's husband i swear it by all that i hold dear this was an awful oath for there were few things which the economical scotsman did not hold dear will you come by the eight p m 
said Mrs. O'Flanagan imperturbably. Come, by nine a.m. we shall be in Rotter— The President finished the sentence and continued resolutely. Even if I am your husband, I am not bound to live with you. That has been settled by law. Pardon me, said Mrs. O'Flanagan. The decision to which you refer merely frees the wife from conjugal bonds. The husband has no such freedom. Then the sooner a man's rights party is formed, the better, said the President. The sooner men do what is right, the better, retorted the lady. Patrick O'Flanagan, I remind you once again that you have taken upon yourself the solemn obligation to be loved, honored, and obeyed by me, Isabella Fallowsmith, till death us do part. "'Come, Patrick, let's catch the 950 Dutch boat.' Paul, said the poor president. "'You believe this strange woman rather than your own colleague? "'What if I could prove her mistaken?' "'Then you may send for a straight waistcoat for me,' said the lady impulsively. "'Will you go away, as my friend asks you, if he proves you are not his wife?' I said. "'I will. If he is not my husband, I will obey his wishes.' "'Good,' said McGillicuddy. "'Look at me, Miss Fallowsmith. "'Do you recognize me as Patrick O'Flanagan?' "'I do,' she answered in a clear, steady voice. "'You would identify me anywhere?' "'Anywhere?' McGillicuddy passed his hand over his face like a conjurer. "'Now do you recognize me as Patrick O'Flanagan?' "'A cry of surprise burst from our four lips. "'The President had put quite a new face and complexion on the matter. "'His spectacles lay on the floor.' and woe-begone wisps of beard and wig were fluttering towards them. The president had stripped his face to the skin. I no longer knew him. Joy overcame my astonishment. I turned triumphantly toward Mrs. O'Flanagan. The honor of the club was safe. Now do you recognize him? I repeated sternly, as Patrick O'Flanagan. Ah, Patrick, Patrick, sobbed Mrs. O'Flanagan, throwing herself passionately in the president's bosom. "'Now at last I recognize you. "'Why did you hide yourself so long from your poor Isabella?' "'With one hand she encompassed his neck. "'With the other she tendered me the photo afresh. "'I scanned it again. "'Yes, it had not been taken by an artist after all. "'McGillicuddy had not counted on that photo "'when he played his little game of brag "'with a woman who had circumvented him at it. "'The expression on his new countenance alone "'belied the smirking photo.' "'I felt sure it was you, dear,' sobbed his wife, "'by your getting out of the window for refreshments when I came along. "'I did not recognize you in the least. "'But I had faith in you, and went on appealing to the old memories, "'thinking that if you were you, I should find a soft spot in your heart at last.' "'She had found a soft spot, only it was in his head. "'I was disgusted with his stupidity.' to have been double-faced to so little purpose. McGillicuddy disentangled himself from Mrs. O'Flanagan. "'Well, now you recognize me, Miss Fallowsmith,' he said. "'I had best tell the truth, but not unless you swear to keep what I say secret.' "'We swore.' "'Good,' said McGillicuddy. "'Now I can speak.' At this Ibn Sight commencement I prepared for the worst. "'Remember,' he said, "'you have promised me the privilege of the confessional.' I am speaking not to phonographs, but to priests. We were awed by his manner. I stole to the door, threw it open suddenly, and allowed Willoughby Jones to fall forward into the inner room, the other married men coming tumbling after. 
Eavesdroppers never hear any good of others, nor want to. I spurned the squirming heap with my foot and swept it outside. Then I gave it a holiday for half an hour, and it scampered downstairs. I locked the outer portal of the bachelor's club, and the apartments were converted into a sanctuary. I returned to the inner chamber. Now, said I, we are alone. Now let us have the promised truth. I will do my best, he replied modestly. The truth about me is very simple. I am not Mr. O'Flanagan, and I am not the husband of this lady. But if that's the truth, you've told us it before, I cried, a wild hope resurgent in my breast. Yes, I could not help it, he said deprecatingly. Please do not interrupt me, Paul. I cannot be this lady's husband, because I married another lady a year before she claims my hand. Don't interrupt me, Miss Fallowsmith. You see, Paul, you wouldn't have confidence in my innocence under this cruel charge, he said plaintively. Such is friendship. My name is not O'Flanagan at all. It's Parker, Peter Parker. My marriage took place at Macclesfield. The circumstances of the wedding were rather out of the way. I regret I was not one of them at the time. But mocking fate overrules our destinies. All my misfortunes in life have arisen from the unfortunate age at which my father died. If he had died a little later, I should never have been married. If he had died a little earlier, I should never have been born. Not having had time to discover his vices, my mother cherished the memory of his virtues. She thought him a paragon among men, and believed even in his epitaph. She wore black for him all the days of her life. Her mourning habit became second nature to her. She was beautiful, as you may judge, and was often pressed to marry again. But her constancy was proof against all solicitations. She told her suitors that she had vowed to wear widow's weeds for her first husband while life lasted, and so they went their ways. But at last a young Scotsman from Andrews University came along and fell in love with her, and wrote sonnets on her eyebrow, and other inconvenient places. He asked her hand, and she pointed to her bonnet. He reflected that it would be very economical to have a wife who always dressed in black, and so they were married. The bride went to the church in a mourning coach, and wore a long crape veil and a black silk gown, trimmed with sprays of yew, for she was not one who took her grief in lightning shades. My stepfather did not affect the saving he had reckoned, for his wife indulged in all the luxuries of woe, and dealt only in the most artistic establishments. People used to call him the widower till my dear mother died. Then, in self-defense, they were forced to call him the bachelor. My mother's death affected me deeply. It seemed as if the light and joy of the house had departed when her sable robes ceased to trail and rustle about the rooms. From the earliest childhood those funeral garments had been part of my consciousness. All my infant associations were entwined round those widow's weeds. My heart's tendrils wound themselves about her crape-wreathed bonnets, her touching devotion to my father, while life pulsed in her veins consecrated our home life with a halo of purity and poetry, to which even my stepfather was not insensible. I felt I was not as other children, that the high example of steadfast pursuit of an ideal amid all the sordid pettiness of existence made life a deeper and nobler thing for me than for my playmates, and I always selected black marbles and tops, and manifested an early preference for blackberries. My mother was the only woman I ever cared for, 
"'Please don't interrupt Miss Fallowsmith. "'Her death left me heartbroken. "'The only consolation was her wardrobe. "'I wandered amid the black hangings "'with which all the cupboards were thickly lined, "'as some pensive poet wanders "'in the sombre glades of a pine forest. "'But I had reckoned without my stepfather. "'He promptly sold off my mother's leavings, "'and it was only with difficulty "'that I could secure the wedding robes "'and the other appurtenances of a widow's outfit. "'The care of these henceforth "'became the solemn charge of my life. "'I wrestled with the moths "'and did battle with the rust. "'As from her grave "'my gentle mother's influence "'was still upon me, "'I owed to her still an emboldening ideal "'and a sanctifying mission. "'Her weeds saved me from suicide.' They kept me straight in the tangles of temptation. My stepfather married again, unmoved by that high example of fidelity to the dead afforded him by my mother. He took another wife to his bosom. To see my step-stepmother flaunting in white, jarred upon a vision habituated to sable of the deepest dye. My deepest emotions were outraged. I left the house almost immediately after the wedding breakfast, bearing with me only my mother's drapings and the trappings of woe in a gladstone bag, and leaving behind me nothing but a curse. I shook the rice out of the threshold of my patent leather shoes and went forth into the wide, wide world. End of section 19